0: Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, My guest this week, and we're doing a series of shows dedicated to the US withdrawal from Afghanistan and the resulting chaos and carnage that we've seen, is Thomas Johnson. He is a professor of Naval Postgraduate, a professor, I'm sorry, at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, the author of the Taliban narratives, and a 30 year, that's right, three zero year scholar of Afghanistan, its history, its culture, and its ongoing misery. Tom, it's great to have you on. And the minute I saw, there are so many now indelible images, not least of all the the Afghans falling off the wheel of the airborne C-17 as it takes off and plummeting to their death. I mean, you were the first person I I wanted to talk to about this because I know you you have forgotten more about this country than a lot of people, certainly most Americans will ever know. What is your initial reaction to what has happened? Where did the United States go wrong? I know we only have an hour, so we might not encompass a full detailed accounting of all that, but what's your impression right now? To really
1: understand the dynamics of this, we really got to go back a number of different decades. So let me quickly do that. Yeah. As many of you might know, the actual king, last king of Afghanistan was Zahir Shah. He became king when he's 33, after his uh, father was, was killed. And he remained king up until 1972, when his first cousin, Daoud, took over. And one of the first things Daoud legalized was political parties. Now, it needs to be recognized that since 1919, Uh, when Afghanistan really became a free country, because before that time, British was basically controlling their foreign policy. But in 1919, at the League of Nations, the then Soviet Union was the first state to recognize Afghanistan, and they had been close to Afghanistan ever since, training almost all of their military officers. Some Afghan military officers were trained at Sandhurst. But the point that I want to make is that the king was overthrown. Political parties were instituted in the early 1970s. And one of the first parties to emerge was a Marxist party, Afghan Marxist party, which was basically a puppet of the Soviet Union, but it had the support of many of the military officers because they were trained in the Soviet Union. So over the next three or four years, there was all kinds of upheavals within Afghanistan by people that wanted nothing to do uh, with Marxism. At that time, the Soviet Union had a thing called the Brezhnev Doctrine. And ostensibly, the Brezhnev Doctrine said that Soviet Union had the right to intervene in any contiguous Marxist state that was in trouble. So they used the Brezhnev Doctrine to invade Afghanistan on December 24, 1979. Now, do I believe that they were using the Brezhnev Doctrine for justification? They might have said that, but what they were extremely worried about was radicals especially radical Islamists that would be so close to the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union, and especially their five Central Asian republics, which were all basically Islamic countries. So they went in, and right away, Carter's national security advisor, uh, Brezhnev, Brzezinski recognized that this was a chance to get back at the Soviet Union and especially try to cause their Vietnam. So from 1979, all the way through about to 1987, the United States had its largest historical covert aid program in the world. And because we knew nothing about Afghanistan, we were using Pakistani military's intelligence unit, the ISI, to basically uh, divvy up to their favorite Mujahideen groups, groups that Ronald Reagan called freedom fighters. Our military aid. And as you know, finally, or when Gorbachev became president, president of the Soviet Union, Perestroika, you know, basically he recognized that he he wanted to change and he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. And he started that process through UN agreements in Geneva. And eventually, by February of 1989, um the Soviet Union had crossed the Amu Dari. Now, we were extremely pleased with this because we only cared about Afghanistan because we wanted to turn it into their Vietnam. And in fact, some people go as far to say that, you know, this helped to bring down the Soviet Union. I think it was an overstatement The Soviet Union was going to fall because of that massive corruption and their economic situation. But it did help. But and right before the Soviets left, they gave their puppet Marxist puppet who was running the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, their Marxist party, Najibullah, about $3 billion. And that allowed his regime actually to outlast the Soviets. The, The regime was finally taken over by the Mujahideen in 1992. And then immediately a civil war broke out. But what's really important that we had, you know, after and about this time, the United States basically gave up all of its relationships uh, with Pakistan, Presler amendment and Afghanistan. And we didn't care at all what was going on. We had achieved our mission. I want to stop you there because
0: there's a lot of kind of revisionist history going on, especially right now. It's not enough to try and summarize in the space of 240 characters, whatever the Twitter minimum is, The last 20 years of the global war on terror and America's folly in Afghanistan, we now have to go back to the Soviet occupation, which has suddenly become treated in rather gauzy, optimistic appraisals that that actually, you know, America's support for the Mujahideen didn't just drive the Soviets out but also led directly to the creation of the Taliban. I I mean, Rashida Tlaib tweeted that the U.S. was arming the Taliban in the 1980s, well before the Taliban even existed as an organization. I mean, a lot of Americans, unfortunately, get their perception of this from movies like Charlie Wilson's War. And, you know, either you get the the sort of...
1: About a third of which is correct. (laughs) A
0: third of which is correct. So you've had the triumphalist Cold War narrative propounded. But you've also now had this revisionist historical point of view, which suggests that America didn't just do too little and wasn't just a kind of absentee proxy combatant in this, this conflict, but actually did so much to create an
1: Islamist-led government. I mean, your view of that. Okay. I've got a couple of points I want to make on that. Yeah, I would not use create. The United States as presently, were so ignorant of Afghanistan, they did not realize who our weapons and money were going to. Yeah, And there were seven Sunni Mujahideen groups that were fighting the Soviets, as well as four Shia groups that were directly supplied by Iran in a place called Hazarajat in the center of Afghanistan. So we had no idea. And and two, and the point that I want to make is that at least two, if not three, of the Mujahideen groups were purely radical Islamists. And actually, you can make a very strong argument that all seven were. You know, Indirectly, we did help the Taliban come into being. I would not, I think it's an overstatement to say create. It was more of a function of our complete lack of knowledge of who we were dealing with. And that problem has plagued us ever since. So you've got to remember back in 1976, Zami Khalilzad wrote a famous foreign affairs article that said the Taliban was the best thing to happen to Afghanistan in decades. So initially, we supported the Taliban. The United States did, at least indirectly, because we saw the turmoil and the bloodshed that different Mujahideen groups. Forced basically by trying to take over the country themselves and, excuse my English, but to, to get their, the largest extent of the booty of, of the war. Now, it wasn't until Albright was visiting uh, Pakistan that she started to make, when she was Secretary of State, she started to make statements on the draconian social policies of the Taliban. And it should be recognized, at least in some of the rural areas, these social policies without the Taliban had basically been going on for at least a millennia. Of course, al-Qaeda and bin Laden particularly showed up in Afghanistan in April of 1976. Now, he did not know the Taliban at all. In fact, he uh, went into eastern Afghanistan and initially was living with a person by the name of Sharif. And he was actually Saudi Arabia's representative to the Mujahideen groups. Quickly, um, he had interviews, the famous CNN interview with Peter Bergen, where he started to talk in international terms about different terrorist actions. Right, And it really gained America's attention. And then, of course, a year or so later, al-Qaeda directly attacked two U.S. embassies in Africa. Right. Uh, But it's very important to understand that while al-Qaeda and bin Laden in particular, who was living in Kandahar with Omar, he built Omar, a wonderful uh, homestead just north of Kandahar City, planned for 9-11 there. But most of the planning was done in Pakistan. Even Omar, Mool Omar, the initial leader of the Taliban, had no idea what nine eleven was about, he knew something big was going to happen, but it's very interesting, and most Americans probably don't realize this, but there are no Afghans. There are no Taliban that participated in anything that happened in nine eleven right It was done basically by our great friends, citizens of Saudi Arabia. Yep. but after nine eleven it was Bush came out with this famous statement, We're not going to only have this global war on terrorism, which I've always thought it's tough to have a metaphorical war about, a, about an ideology, but they were also going to attack any country that obviously they believed were harboring terrorists. So on October 7th, the United States and Great Britain started their bombing campaign. I was seconded at that time into Rumsfeld's office. To help on some initial planning. It was just amazing what I saw going around. I mean, even then, I, I had a feeling that this was going to be disastrous because we just didn't understand Afghanistan, Yeah, even though I pleaded with these people on a number of different items. We thought after our invasion on October 7th, 2001, that the talent, and ostensibly, to get Al-Qaeda bin Laden, but also to bring and it later turned into, and also to bring the Taliban regime down. It later had mission creep and turned into actual nation building, right. which we're not really good at. So we thought that the war, and I know this for a fact because I was there when we attacked, I was in the government when we attacked Afghanistan. Most senior analysts thought that the, the regime would fall probably in mid spring of 2002. But to our delight and surprise, the regime fell by early November. So we had to cobble together, if you will, um, some type of political system that was going to take place instead of the Taliban. So we had the bond agreements. We had meetings in bond Germany. And this was not a peace treaty. This was not a peace agreement at all, because even moderate Taliban that wanted to participate were turned away, which turned out to be a tremendous mistake by the United States and didn't participate. So we created a political roadmap that wasn't based on any type of knowledge of Afghan history, their political system, or their culture.
0: Well, that, and that playbook, I mean, was famously applied in Iraq in the days of the occupation as well.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Yeah, that's not a new thing for, for the United States. So let me ask you this. What, with your knowledge of that history and that culture, what should we have done differently? It sounds like uh, there were elements of the Taliban that were more nationalist and amenable to even being included in a political program, as cobbled together by the United States, that we perhaps should have worked with at the time.
1: Is that what you're suggesting, or there were moderate Taliban, Now a lot of it, you know, was semantic. It depends on how you yeah. define moderate, but not, and and actually some senior leaders of the Taliban at the time of our invasion were fairly moderate, at least in relative terms. And they came to the United States, they came to Kabul, and they said they wanted to work, uh, help. And what happened is they were bagged and and flown to Gitmo. You know, we had a real opportunity to involve leading Taliban figures that were moderate uh, in the bond meetings and the bond accords that could have satisfied at least some of the taliban's desires not all but maybe some of them that could be fit into a, an actual governmental system in kabul but we didn't do that you've got to understand that afghanistan is a very conservative islamic country and what i like to tell my students is you know we put together a basic political map that I hate to say this because I view myself as a feminist, but violated many aspects of of what an Afghan's honor, an Afghan's individual honor is based on. And in many respects, you know, Afghan is honor and revenge society. I'm particularly talking about bringing the women out into the open. I, I tell my students constantly that the United States Constitution was ratified in what? 1787? No. And women didn't get a right to vote in the United States until 1990. African American women basically didn't get the right to vote until 1965. Right. But we took an extremely conservative and you know uh, society and took one of the major dynamics of their cultural uh, culture and turned it on their heads. And the other thing immediately we did is we started a counterterrorism campaign. And in that counterterrorism campaign, again, we violated. Many of the explicit codes, especially of the Pashtuns. For example, we would go in and our special services, especially. And, we, and, and by this time, ISAF, that is a combination of allies, were also in Afghanistan to help us, but we relegated them to Kabul so we could do what we wanted to do out in, in the rural areas. So what we did is we conducted night raids, night raids, night raids, where we, that, and we, where we knocked down a wall. We brought out both the men and the women who lived separately than the, uh, than the men, even in their own Afghan houses, in their bedclothes. Yeah. This was such an egregious thing to do that we were completely clueless of. We turned many people to, to join the Taliban because we, we forced them to seek revenge against us because their honor was completely disabled. An Afghan, especially a rural Afghan with no honor, is nothing in their community. Let me just pause you right there. You know, one of the things that
0: that a lot of people, myself included, have had to reckon with. Let's start with the, the, the last 10 years, because when the Arab Spring kicked off, there was this enormous idealistic contingent of people, also myself included, who thought, you know, that there were enough good, when I say democratically minded, what I mean to say are people who didn't really pose a threat to the United States or the West. They weren't going to govern, they didn't have a sense of politics in the way that you and I might have found amenable or, or would have shared. But nonetheless, they came from indigenous cultures and you know they wanted to overthrow tyrannical regimes. And one of the things that one has to engage with, just from a, a pure realist perspective, is some version of Islamism is going to have to be countenanced by the United States if it has any business to you know conducting diplomacy or engaging with this part of the world. I mean, you mentioned Saudi Arabia famously, uh, at least until recently, uh, with with the, the installation of MBS, not exactly shying away from a radical indoctrination program or proselytization, particularly abroad in madrasas, has been a US ally for a long time. But this almost romantic notion that we were going to, at the end of a bayonet, create some Bertrand Russell style democratic paradise in parts of the world that I mean, it's true, you know, it might have had incarnations of democracy at, at, at one point or another, but they didn't really resemble American or even Western European style democracy. And as you point out, are deeply con- culturally conservative. This idea is still t- to this day, deeply anathema to a large swath of the American population. And now because foreign policy has been turned into this domestic not even political, but ideological cage match. The, the belief that you know the United States partnering with a group of, of insurgents or militants as they did in Iraq during the Anbar awakening to fight AQI, including people who had been part of AQI or had been partnering with AQI just days or weeks prior. This sounds to me what you're describing is a pragmatic approach for dealing with Afghanistan, which was never attempted because instead we, we kind of stuck to our high-minded rhetoric and our talking points, and frankly, our, our experimental and utopian nonsense, which has now failed catastrophically. I mean, this is a difficult pill though for Americans to swallow because you know, in, to the layman, there is an easy conflation I mean, even the very term that you use, moderate Taliban, people, I mean, try going on Fox News and saying that today, right? Even with your depth of knowledge and sort of granular understanding of of the dynamics of that particular political movement, you cannot do it. You know, you have this, this sort of American populism, which says essentially all Muslims with guns are terrorists or aspiring terrorists looking to do harm to the United States. That is, I think, largely informing the the way America conducts itself in the world. And I don't just mean the Pentagon's now failed nation building mission. I mean, through diplomacy, I mean, just engagement. Let
1: me expand on some of your points, because your points are very well taken. And I'm not trying to be pejorative, but Americans are basically arrogant people. And our government is very arrogant. They think that what works in the United States is going to work just fine in every parts of the world. And of course, you know, uh, President Bush's initial push to democratize the world was a function of this. But what people don't understand is that at the village level, I mean, that's where those of you that remember your introductory anthropology, that's the qualm. That's where an Afghan gains his personality and his political beliefs and much of how he's going to act the rest of his career. But at the village or calais level, they practice pure Greek democracy. And they have in this area uh, that's now called Afghanistan for two millennia. And what I mean by that is in the villages, they have things called jurgas or shurgas, uh, where they try to resolve both internal to the village and external problems. They do this by bringing together mostly the village elders, sometimes women, but mostly not because women live in the state of Perda in rural Afghanistan, which means they basically have no social role outside of uh, the household. But they'll bring together the elders and others, and they sit literally in a circle. That's what jirga means, right. and they vote on these issues by consensus. It has to be consensus. And if one, say, for example, if one family accuses another family of stealing a lamb, if the family does not, if one of the families does not agree with what the jirga comes out with, they are literally, literally kicked out of the country. And that explains a lot of notions on refuge and other types of things that that the Taliban hold dear. The second point that has to be understood is that. Strong central governments have always been the thing of rebellion and revolution in Afghanistan. Always historically. Right. Historically, I like to tell my students we made a cut and paste error when we decided to make Iraq a federal government, where only kind of government that was successful in Iraq for years was a very strong central government. Yeah. And... We made them federal, yet in Afghanistan, we made it a strong presidential system, one of the strongest presidential systems in the world. And they've always been used, especially the rural people, to dislike Kabul, to dislike the central government. We should have established much more of a federal government there. That's where the people's um, affinity and real political beliefs lie. We set up ourselves for failure, is one thing. So we continued to fight. And the other thing is that I mentioned that for the first couple of years, we fought, fought counterterrorism almost exclusively right. in Afghanistan. But in 2005, uh, General Petraeus was commander at TRADOC, which is in Camp Leavenworth, and they put together doctrine for counterinsurgency. He and many other people wrote this. And this doctrine... The United States Doctrine, which came in the form of Army Field Manual 3-24, was revised seven times, it's now called Joint Publication 324, has all kinds of things that we completely violated in our war against the Taliban. For example, uh, our doctrine suggests that a counterinsurgency and an insurgency is 80% Informational or political, and only twenty percent, twenty percent kinetic. Yeah. But even when Petraeus and McChrystal were leading, you know, our soldiers and NATO in Afghanistan, their major metric of success continued to be body bags. I mean, our doctrine says that you cannot kill or capture your way to victory, uh, relative to an insurgency. What you have to do is to make the insurgency. Irrelevant. And this comes to my major point. We learn nothing from the Soviet example. Again, we actually established garrisons or forward operating bases in almost the exact areas that the Soviets did. And to try to conduct counterinsurgency, which is going to rely on understanding the rural, you know, don't forget, seventy-five percent of the population of Afghanistan is rural. That's yeah. where the, in the military terms, the center of gravity was. We, know, we were too lazy ever to find out what the rural population wanted. And, you know, we might do a deterrent patrol and be there maybe, you know, from noon to five, but 15 minutes after we left and returned to fob, the Taliban were back in the village. And so this notion of clear hold and build was basically clear return to fob, clear return to fob. We never practiced any of the type of doctrinal. And the reason for that, in your view, I mean, was it of total fear
0: of forget about body bags on the other side, but body bags coming home of American
1: soldiers, right? Yeah, I think the Vietnam syndrome still played a role, but clearly, Since when Obama basically withdrew most of our troops at the end of his regime, I mean, I was there. I mean, our mission became basically force protection. And when your mission becomes force protection with a rural insurgency, remember, Iraq was not a rural insurgency. It was an urban insurgency. Much, much different than Afghanistan. You know, you're asking for disaster. Um, You've got to be where the people are. And we refuse to set up our troops in the rural areas. And
0: had we done that and American casualties and fatalities skyrocketed, domestic political resolve to continue any form of occupation or warfare would have evaporated, right? I mean, I guess that's sort of the 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 over-the-horizon political aspects of COIN, right? You have this grand theoretical construct for how to engage and and embed yourself with the local population, build their trust, and as you say, make the insurgency irrelevant. And yet doing so carries a very big risk, which is that, you know, American soldiers are gonna get killed and Americans don't want to turn on the television hearing about coffins coming home, a la Vietnam, right? Look, I, I think now is the time we can be provocative. You know, I, I, you know, everybody, everybody seems to be trafficking in counterfactual history, even before all the facts of history have come in on this debacle. But I want to ask you, does this mean that if the United States had, let's just call it what it is, if if it had the stomach for more dead bodies of American soldiers, that it could have actually implemented this counterinsurgency doctrine to a satisfactory degree?
1: I lectured for and briefed military and government officials for years. What we should have done you know, provincial reconstruction teams were not the way to go because, you know, that just like in Vietnam, we thought it fought it from the provincial level. Where we had to fight this war was from the district and uh, the village level. Yeah. And let me tell you something. Afghanistan has about 420 districts. And unlike the United States, where our con- con- congressional districts are all gerrymandered, in the vast majority of Afghan districts, the boundaries mean something. What the boundaries mean is the extent of political and economic reach of the leading Afghan family in that particular district. So what we should have done, in my opinion, we should have initially gone in, especially when Petraeus was focusing on 200 districts, we should have gone into those 200 districts, found out who the leader of that district was, literally offer him millions of dollars, just like the CIA was handing out after our initial uh, invasion in Kandahar uh, in 2001, to, you know, you can't buy an Afghan, but you can surely rent them. (laughs) And history shows that. So anyway, we should have rented the leaders to support us. And then we should have set up and actually bought or rented land on his land and put in at least, uh, you know, at least a platoon uh, if not a company of uh, American soldiers uh, with people from agriculture and other places and actually do hold a clear hold and build simultaneously rather than sequentially like we were pushing. And that would have made you know the Taliban never, except it, at one combat operating post ever tried to... Uh, attack a sizable unit of us soldiers so this would have made them basically irrelevant in that we would have taken away their important supply and logistics base that they used the royal they use the rural areas for and instead of us having united states soldiers there we could have also complemented that with Af- afghan national army soldiers and really taught them well on a seven you know 24/7 365 basis and also have Afghan national police. The Afghan national police have been useless in this conflict because they're an extractive organization. They don't protect the people, they take from the people. I want to follow up on on
0: that last point about you know the, the Afghan military capability, which the, the president has essentially cast all the blame on and saying, Well, the, the Afghans needed to show up and they didn't, and this is why this has all happened. Now, I think I forget the number of Afghan soldiers that have been killed fighting the Taliban, and al-Qaeda alongside American forces over the last 20 years. Obviously, the perception is one of a, a rotten institution, deeply corrupt. They were either bought off or they deserted in the face of, I mean, underwhelming numerical odds, but I guess overwhelming ideological resolve and ferocity. It seems like, though, the reporting now suggests, well, in fact, when the U.S. stopped sharing intelligence, stopped essentially keeping the Afghan Air Force, such as it is Uh, in the sky and and precluded the arrival of contractors to kind of do the upkeep and maintenance on these planes, we left them hand strong. So there's enough blame to go back at Washington for not really helping at least at full capability stand up this military. It's one thing to talk about the deployments of Afghan soldiers, but to your mind, was there a true native willingness to kind of hold this country together and keep the Taliban out of power?
1: Or is that simply a myth? it's It's a critical question. Let me answer it this way. Yeah. In either late October or early November of two thousand and eighteen, the New York Times published an article that suggested that both Kabul and the United States, the Pentagon, agreed to classify casualty rates for the Afghan national defense uh, services, and also to classify the actual size of those services. We have exaggerated, actually have lied to the American people, which will come out very clearly in the Pentagon, uh, in the Afghanistan papers that's going to be published towards the end of this month. We lied. Relative to the size of the military, yeah, there's absolutely no question about that. We were talking about, you know, in the press was talking, continued to talk about 350,000 members of the defense force. That's delusional. It wasn't anything close to that. And when we classified that information, we and Kabul in you know November of 2019 or 18, that was a complete tell. Yeah. It seems to me that we, you know, that this was not going to be a very effective force. And then just five days ago, you know, Ghani came out and said, hey, let's bring the warlord militias in and I'll arm also the Afghan population to be able to, you know, try to keep away this this onslaught of the Taliban. What does that say? That says that even four days ago, Ghani had no faith in the Afghan National Army right. and he shouldn't have. As soon as they were viciously attacked, they laid down their arms, withdrew or just deserted. It's very similar to what happened in Saigon. The South Vietnamese had a professional army of of near 500,000 people and a very good air force, but they all deserted. They all went underground. They all went into the woodworks five days after we left Saigon in April of about six days uh, when we left Saigon in April of 1975. And the very same thing has happened with the Afghan military. Okay. But the damning thing about this is that there were people, and I know for a fact, senior people, policy analysts that were suggesting to the Biden administration that the Taliban could take over the country within six days. Nobody listened to them.
0: Nobody listened to them. So so this was not an intelligence failure. This was the the deprioritization of the worst case scenario, which turned out to be the, the, the prophetic one.
1: Absolutely. We're hearing all over the media about this tremendous intelligence failure. Hey, a month ago, the the intelligence community put out a report and said that uh, the Kabul regime would be gone in at least 90 days. Now, they might have been wrong with the length of time uh, because nobody expected, except some Afghan analysts, expected this the speed that the Taliban would take over the country. And just like when they took over the country in 1996, from the very corrupt Mujahideen government in Kabul, you know, they took over most of the provinces without firing a weapon, because there was nobody to defend the areas. You know, Ghani was well aware of that. Let me just say one thing. The theorists of insurgencies and counterinsurgencies suggest that historically, two things have to be present for an insurgency to almost, almost uh, to win, almost impossible defeat. And those two things are, is that the population has to view the regime in power of the country as legitimate by at least 80% of the population. The last poll I saw, was that not even 30% of the Afghan population viewed the very corrupt and fraudulent Ghani regime legitimate. I'm not talking about popularity. I'm talking about legitimate, that they shouldn't even be in power. And of course, Ghani stole, explicitly stole. I've, I've published papers on this, uh, both the 2014 and the 2019. The second thing that insurgency, counterinsurgency theorists say must be there for an insurgency to be, be victorious is that you have at least 15% of popular support. And because we were out of the rural areas, the, the, Afghan, the, the Taliban for years has had 15 support, 15% support of the population. And the last thing I want to say is there's been, it's been very rare, very rare historically for insurgency to lose when they had a refuge in a contiguous country. So there were so many variables set up against us that we just didn't recognize or we ignored. And to bl- blame this now on an intelligence failure is really a cop-out. This was a failure of the Bush, Obama, Trump, and for the lack of planning for evacuation of the Biden administrations. Uh, to blame the intelligence community on this is borders on delusion to me.
0: Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you then what the prospects are for moving forward. I mean, all of Afghanistan belongs to the Taliban now, like it or not. You, you're seeing reporting suggesting now the. I've learned to take these, these things with a pinch of salt. You know, the, the threat level of this becoming a new base of operations for Al Qaeda, plus obviously the, the ISIS factor that's prominent in Afghanistan, which, you know, the Taliban have been fighting ISIS since 2015 pretty fiercely, but nonetheless. You know, Americans will only care about who lost Afghanistan if another plane flies into an, a, a building in New York or the Lincoln Tunnel gets blown up and we find out, whoops, this all originated and was, was plotted in, in Kandahar or in, even in Kabul, uh, whatever. You know, This unfortunately is, is the, the, the sort of solipsism guiding American foreign policy at the moment because it really is related to domestic calculations. I mean, to my mind that one of the starkest images I saw yesterday on Meet the Press, you had two veteran reporters, one of them, Peter Baker, who I think the first American journalist in Afghanistan in advance of US forces in 2001. And then you had two pollsters, a Republican and a Democrat, sort of reading the tea leaves as to how the country is going to make this out. And both of them seem to be of a consensus that actually 70% of Americans are are okay with just getting out. And yes, these images are are grisly, they're humiliating, and the press is covering it nonstop. But in a month, they're not going to be covering this and it's going to be the status quo ante. We'll be back to you know anti-mask activists and anti-vaxxers and the Delta variant and all the usual bullshit. What do you see? And I know prophecy in this line of work is a very dangerous business. Let's look at the best case scenarios for Afghanistan under Taliban reign and the worst case scenarios. What could feasibly happen? Do you anticipate at some point U.S. forces having to return, even in a small contingent to kind of put out fires that are are going to be
1: caused Allah in Iraq when we went back in and it won't work yeah. I mean we can do it if it satisfies some type of you know, desire that we have, but it's not going to be successful. I mean, Afghanistan is the size of Texas. It's a very large country. Yeah. And the Taliban are now spread all over the country. It's estimated the Taliban have 85,000 soldiers in country right now that are complemented with 10,000 foreign fighters. Now, I recognize that most people view this relative to international terrorism. And this gets me in trouble all of the time. The Haqqani group, Haqqani, now is actually the head of the Taliban military. They always had a very loose relationship with the Taliban. They are a terrorist organization. At least they surely use terrorist activities in Kabul. But most of the Taliban did not use terrorism as a tactic, at least not how we usually define terrorism. I'm sorry, they use it as a tactic. There's never been an Afghan that's been part of an international terrorist event. Is that suggesting that they're good people? No, I despise them. But to just blanketly call them a terrorist organization, I think is misleading and sort of corrupts what's gonna happen. Now, I believe that the Taliban have changed in a couple of ways in very significant fashion since 1996 or 2001. One, is that because they had shadow governments in many of the provinces that uh, Afghanistan or Kabul basically ignored, and actually in some of these provinces set up social programs, they learned how to administer. They a- I've seen it. They actually have Gantt charts of how they plan to govern. That was not at all there you know, from 96 until 2001. So, so one of the big changes, of course, is that the other thing, and again, people will argue with me about this, the Taliban desperately wants international recognition. You've got to understand that the initial Taliban were recognized by three countries, the UAE, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia. In 1999, because of international calls against opium coming, emanating in Afghanistan, the Taliban actually stopped all opium production. They stopped it. Now, the conspiracy theorists say, oh, they stopped it because they wanted to raise the price for next year. I think that's bogus. I mean, the Taliban have a lot of influence when they want to exert it. And uh, I think they, they would like to exert it peacefully, but if they don't, they'll do it violently.
0: You know, certainly it's been reported, and I know it's controversial, but I've I've had many people on this show to discuss the relationship between Russia and the Taliban, particularly the GRU, Unit 29155. Clearly, the Russians are not as much in a panic as the Americans. They haven't evacuated their embassy there has been a relationship between Moscow and the Taliban, whether it's just, you know, logistical, diplomatic, or the Pentagon has alleged that, that Russia has been sending them material, light arms, and so on for years. Then there's also the China's calculation with respect to the Taliban. It seems that, you know, one can already see their kind of PR strategy for lack of a better term, in terms of their willingness to engage with Western journalists and say, Oh, we, we have no quarrel, we don't plan to export jihadism or terrorism to the West and, you know, but, you know, the Mujahideen will eventually take over the world and, and, you know, so on and so forth. Where do you see their kind of international relations going here? Do you see them being recognized as the sovereign government of, of Afghanistan by Moscow, by Beijing? By other Middle Eastern states. I think Oman has already come out and basically congratulated on their political victory. This is not going to be a replay of, of the early aughts, it seems. There's just going to, it, I mean, the, the reckoning is that this is the only show in town now, right?
1: Yeah, I think Turkey will also recognize them fairly shortly. Yeah. But of all of those countries you mentioned, the most important is China. Yeah. I've always been amazed that, you know, 10, 12 years ago, that Kabul basically ceded some of the, the best mineral rights areas to China. Afghanistan had never had a railroad. It would not allow a railroad to be built in the country because it was. We we're always afraid that it would be used by people that want to occupy the country. The Chinese have already built a major railroad out of Afghanistan, if not into China, near China. They have rights to the largest copper mines uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, China is thinking 25 years ahead, as you know. Yeah. They're looking For And it's estimated that Afghanistan has trillions of dollars of mineral wealth, but they're extremely hard to get to. And of course, China is extremely close with Pakistan now, you know, uh, uh, in in so many ways. So I think China is going to be more important than Russia. But of course, the nightmare scenario is if these regional interlopers actually start a proxy war, and that could lead to absolute disaster. That's the one thing that keeps me awake at night. I don't think it's a, it's a strong possibility, but it's still there. But I would focus much more on what China does than what Russia does. And
0: what do you, what do you make of Iran's game plan now?
1: Uh, of them recognizing the Taliban? Or, I mean, just in dealing with them, engaging with them in some way? I don't know, Michael. I mean, give me some specifics on that.
0: I was looking to you for that. In 2001, you know, the Iranians famously essentially shared their intelligence with the United States to show us where to go after the Taliban positions. There's that famous Dexter Filkins piece with, uh, I think it was Ryan Crocker meeting with Zarif in Geneva. And Zarif gave him a map of Afghanistan and he said, here, you can keep it. There seems to be, you know, momentum behind the Biden administration looking to do another JCPOA with Iran, albeit. Does Afghanistan even factor in Iran's kind of geopolitical and strategic calculations? Um, you know, what, what are they, if you were there?
1: Well, Iran will not let the Taliban wipe out the Shia population in Afghanistan. As I suggested earlier, during the anti-Soviet jihad from 79 to 89, Iran would actually fly fixed-wing aircraft, into Hazarajat to be able to rearm the four Shia militias that were fighting the Soviets. Iran will not allow uh, the Shia population, which is about 17 to 19 percent of Afghanistan, to be destroyed. And in many respects, the Hazaras, the Shia, have basically held their own against the Taliban. But I think that a lot of it's going to be how Shia are treated that will, that will really um, define Iran's role. Also how many IDPs, after the Soviets invaded, the population of Afghanistan was 15 million. As you know, about 2 million of those went to Iran and 3 million went to Pakistan. More left after, more came later. But will, will Iran be willing to accept that, that amount of, of refugees? I don't know. I don't think so. But I do know that they're very concerned about the Shia in Afghanistan and how they react to different situations it is fairly unknown, but I think that they will react. Well, Tom, I mean, that, this is a very, uh, you gave me both the...
0: Um bird's- eye view and the worm's eye view which is what i knew you wouldn't and, and, and hope for by having you on here i mean is there anything is there anything we haven't covered that we we should have or that you would want people to kind of take away and understand from what's just taken place and how you know the failure to understand afghan history and culture despite talents such as yours advising multiple presidents and administrations i mean what where does this lead the United States and its kind of credibility, its standing in the world, its relationship with its allies? I mean, a lot more countries partnered with the U.S. and fought and lost soldiers and not even just soldiers, but also civilians and contractors, NGO workers in Afghanistan. And I'm pretty sure in any other major contemporary conflict. Where does this leave
1: Washington's kind of stature? In the last couple of weeks, it's had a tremendous impact on our stature, especially laying low and laying, withdrawing all of the Afghans. And there were tens of thousands that directly helped American military. And it was much more than just translators and interpreters. Afghanistan had a fairly vibrant economy because of all the Afghans that lived and worked on all of the forward operating bases. Right. And those people haven't really been taken a look at. And the way that we treated the contractors, I think, is deplorable. So I think that uh, this is going to have a tremendous impact on how people view American power. There's no doubt that we have the most technically sophisticated military in the world, but some of that technology is not relevant to these types of conflict, okay? They're just not relevant. You know, Afghanistan's geography and its people, basically defined what the Americans could use. And they surely couldn't use what they really wanted to use. They relied way too much on air power, which is exactly what the Taliban wanted, because they know that 500 pounders go astray. And if you kill an innocent Afghan woman or child, um, you lose that village forever. Now, since the beginning of the war, most of the civilian casualties were caused by the Taliban. But recently, most of them have been caused by Kabul in the United States. Right. So I, I just think this is going to have a real impact on how people view our power internationally. The
0: Taliban, you know, there's reports that they're going house to house looking for former, now former, I guess, members of the Afghan special forces. What do you reckon their retaliation against partners and, you know, informants and allies of the United States will be? Are they going to, for the purposes of their own kind of political consolidation, have a a grace period or some kind of rehabilitation for enemies of, of their regime, or are they just to put everybody to the sword?
1: Well, first of all, the, the Taliban know to a great extent who worked for the Americans yes. and who worked for Kabul. Now, of course, the worst case scenario is those people would be killed and their entire families will be killed. That's what they the Taliban often suggested during the war. But again, I'm suggesting to you what a lot of people will argue with me about, but I think that the Taliban desperately want international recognition. And if they go on a killing spree, it's going to harm them tremendously. And they're in this game for the long run. They want to run Afghanistan. So, you know, again, it's up in the air, but I, I think that you're going to see not necessarily a warmer, fuzzier Taliban, but you're going to see a Taliban that's much more critical or understanding how it's moves are viewed internationally.
0: And I mean, the same liability, presumably, that the US and the Afghan Air Force faced, they face. I mean, if they take out a villager and members of the family, they lose that village forever, right? Exactly. That's interesting. Well, Tom, I mean, listen, I mean, I got to have you back on as the situation develops in, in this country. But I really appreciate your insights and your your depth of knowledge and expertise. I mean, it's, it's great to talk to somebody who sort of didn't Wikipedia their way through this on Twitter in the last 48 hours. Yeah. Anyway, are you working on uh, any new books, any, any project?
1: Yeah, I I just had a a new book published. That's a historical, it's the fifth edition of a, a seminal book that was initially written by Ludwig Adamik, that's called the Historical Dictionary of Afghanistan. It had four editions. He died. And the publisher came to me a couple of, about four years ago, and asked me to rewrite it. And that was just published in May, after, you know, two and a half, three years and 900 pages. But I'm working right now on a new book that's directly focused on what were the key mistakes and how the United States should have actually dealt with Afghanistan it's going to be an edited volume and it's going to be very hard hitting and I'm doing that purposely
0: well that then let's absolutely have you back when that comes out I, I would love to hear your analysis from that book as well
1: uh, my pleasure Michael anytime you want me on just let me know
0: perfect well you guys have been listening to Foreign Office my guest uh, Thomas Johnson he is a very accomplished scholar uh, of Afghanistan, and he teaches at the Naval Postgraduate University College, or University, I forget, in Monterey.
1: We call it the Naval Postgraduate School, but it's an accredited university. We get about PA
0: Okay, and as I mentioned at the outset, I mean, I will have more guests on this week, experts on Afghanistan, uh, people who have published written and published books as opposed to not even read them which is most of social media these days uh to talk about where america went wrong missed opportunities or sort of lost causes which unfortunately has become the the uh, bailiwick of the show but um tom all the best and uh hope to see you back soon my pleasure my friend take it easy